Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to episode two of the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 weeks. This is technically our third episode, as we also did in episode zero, in which we discussed the origins of Excalibur, the origins of this pod, the origins of us, and did a deep dive into the story that introduced Excalibur, known as Excalibur, The Sword is Drawn. You don't have to listen to that episode before listening to this one, but because I think it's amazing and because I think it does a great job of setting up what we do on this pod, I am going to keep encouraging you to check that one out as your lead. This week in episode two, we are looking at Excalibur number two, A Warwolf Possessed, originally published in November 1988. The creative team is Chris Claremont on writing, Alan Davis on penciling and plotting, Paul Neary on inks, Glynis Oliver on colors, Tom Orzachowski on lettering, and according to Marvel.com, Claremont and Davis on editing as well. That seems strange to me, but the internet is always right. So let's go with that. Nobody shall have the sword! Nobody shall wield Excalibur but me! We're going to have frequent guests on the pod, but for the first few episodes, including this one, we're sticking with our core team. We'll start by quickly introducing ourselves and then get into our analysis of this week's issue. Starting with myself, I am Dr. Anna Papard. I'm a talker, writer, maker, occasional university instructor writer on all things sex and gender and representation and superhero comics and Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, a joke that will either get really old really quickly or I'm just going to lean into it even more and start dropping the unofficial. <laughs> I am joined, as always, by... Hi. <laughs> <laughs> or I totally derailed you. No, I, was, I mean, I, and I, I, that was funny. I don't think you should edit this out. I think you should just go with it. Um, <laughs> hi, I'm... I'm Christopher Maverick. You can call me Mav. I am a PhD student eternally in cultural studies at Duquesne University. I'm an instructor of literature and communications at Mount Aloysius College. I am a avid podcaster um, at voxpopcast.com and I read funny books for a living. That's what I do. So I am here and I'm excited to talk about this. One of my favorite series ever. Thank you. And Andrew? I'm Andrew DeMann. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University uh, and I'm the project lead on the Claremont Run, an academic study on the works of Chris Claremont. Thank you so much. I'm hoping that we'll get listeners reading along with the pod and of course we've been posting lots of images from the comics we're reading to Twitter and our website. But for those of you who may not have read this comic or maybe haven't read it in decades, we'll kick things off with some brief plot summary. So Excalibur number two, a warwolf possessed, opens the same place that Excalibur one did in a deserted factory complex near the fictional 
fictional Loch Demon in the Scottish Highlands. There, a mutant boy who will later learn is named Colin McKay is playing tag with a robot head we later learn to call Widget. This plot with Colin will take another 40 plus issues to play out, but we'll hear more about Widget pretty soon. Colin is hiding from a villain named Vixen, who is kind of a gang leader who dresses like a punk colonial explorer. I think that's mostly accurate. Just when Vixen and her goons seem to have Colin cornered, Widget opens a dimensional portal and we get the title of this podcast as Colin's face breaks into a beaming smile and he declares, oh gosh, oh golly, oh wow. That's where it comes from. Then he disappears through the portal and we won't see him again for literally years. In the meantime, Excalibur is mucking around in the London Underground trying to find a lead on Shadowcat, aka Kitty Pride, who was kidnapped by the Warwolves at the end of the last issue. At the Warwolves Underground Lair, which is charmingly decorated with movie posters from various wolf-themed movies, a werewolf tries to devour Kitty and steal her skin, but after it eats her, her skin is not there. She seems to have vanished somehow. Phoenix, aka Rachel Summers, feels Kitty being devoured via telepathic link and reacts powerfully, becoming a beacon of fire that cuts a wide hole through the roof of the station. After some cutaways that confirm Fraser's bank employee, Nigel Frobisher remains the worst. The bank manager, Courtney Ross, remains smitten with her old beau, Captain Britain, aka Brian Braddock. We return to the subway where Captain Britain is trying to reason with the police about the property damage. As he does so, Nightcrawler, aka Kurt Wagner, thinks he has a lead on Kitty, following a suspicious police officer who is, in fact, a werewolf. He, too, is captured. Megan becomes part wolf to track Kurt, while back at the werewolf's lair, the wolf that ate Kitty is suffering from indigestion. It morphs into a kind of werewolf-kitty hybrid, and when it's ordered to devour the unconscious Nightcrawler, it rebels, attacking its werewolf compatriots instead. Captain Britain and Megan bust into the lair and with Kurt's help make quick work of the werewolves. Rachel shows up in a burst of flame and immediately tries to kill the werewolves, but Kurt, showing his leadership and moral character, rushes into the flames to stop her, observing astutely that murder is wrong. But things aren't <laughs> over yet. There's still the werewolf kitty hybrid to deal with. Werewolf kitty is in the throes of an identity crisis until a pair of human hands start to pry open its silver mouth and out struggles a very angry, very naked kitty bride. Kitty explains the fake science of how she escaped the team debates what to do with the werewolves, and Kitty declares that she has the perfect plan, which on the final page of the issue turns out to be donating the werewolves to the London Zoo, which doesn't really make a lick of sense, but we'll just go with it for now. It'll play out in a future issue. This issue is slightly less dense than issue number one, but there's still a lot to discuss, which we will do now. So as we did in episode one, I thought we could start with some first impressions. If you had any first initial memories of reading this comic, either as a 14, 15 year old, or in my case, quite a bit later, or if there was anything that particularly surprised you while rereading it for the podcast today. I think I was a little shocked sort of rereading. We talked about tonal shifts in the last episode we did, but mm-hmm. I, I was kind of shocked by like just how slapstick the werewolves are in their interactions and how, again, kind of hand wavy the ending of this issue mm-hmm. is, sending them to the zoo. I, like, I, I did not love that aspect of this issue. Oh, okay. I, Shots fired. So I didn't, and again, this is weird because I... I've reread Sword is Drawn many, many times just because it is, you know, because of my love of Excalibur, I've been like, oh, that's such a delightful story. Maybe I'll go back and read that again. Happens every couple of years, right? And I'd read (laughs) issue one again, even before we started doing this podcast, I'd read it just sort of to myself. And then I was like, once we decided we're going to do the podcast, I was like, well, I don't want to read ahead. I want to sort of experience these as we go. I didn't like this issue as much as I remember liking it. Just, um, Mm -hmm. 
it does seem I actually like the slapstickiness of the of the werewolves. Everything else, like compared to what we were saying last issue, didn't work as well. I didn't hate it, but it really felt felt a lot like, well, we're trying to work this out. And and the thing that really stuck out the most is when in your in, in your recap and reading it to myself, when Nightcrawler has his moment where he tries to do his best Captain America impression and tell Rachel, well, no, we can't kill them for reasons because we're heroes. I mean, it, it comes across as very stiff and out of character and not, I mean, not that he's against killing. I'm okay with that. But his characterization of just doing it just seems like, well, this is what heroes do. So we are going to do this. And this is the line that I'm supposed to say here. And it would have worked better coming from this era of Scott Summers than it does from Kurt Wagner mm, and at this point. The one thing that I do love about that scene is just everybody is, there's the panel where the Phoenix Force is being activated right before Nightcrawler has the speech that you're talking about and it's this yellow panel with just filled with fire and everybody is being knocked down by Rachel's fire and Kurt is running into the fire to stop her and I do think mm-hmm. that that is particularly emblematic of him you know, just like regardless of the danger he sees a friend about to do something that she's going to regret and he will like risk his own life and run into the fire and stop her from doing that i think visually that works for me but yeah Mm -hmm. the mechanicalness of his little speech afterwards doesn't really play up to that moment Mm -hmm. um for me what really stood out this time around like again just having the hindsight of looking at the development of the relationship in the future i I really like the idea of rachel holding kitty together Mm -hmm. uh, and and how that sort of um deepens that bond between them symbolically like we've already got the idea that they have this shared link um i thought that was really cool and really kind of kind of well done yeah i liked that too and sort of one of my first questions is going to be about the team dynamics so maybe we can talk about kitty and rachel right away yeah i don't know i was surprised by how sort of just action oriented this issue was compared to that first issue where we had Mm -hmm. i would argue like a lot more tonal shifts and we had a lot more character work than we necessarily have in this issue where yeah as i was trying to do the summary that first issue was so hard to summarize because we're going back and forth and things are happening and this is kind of just sort of proceeding with the plot in a largely linear way um we do have some sort of references to storylines that are going to play out later on but for the most part it's sort of how are we going to solve this how are we going to track down the werewolves and solve this problem and like beat them into submission and then enact justice right it's more of a traditional superhero narrative in some ways specifically i really like the fight scene the fight mm-hmm. scene is really well done to me. It has all everybody kind of doing their own thing. It's got competing interests and some really cool visual gags like Nightcrawler and Brian smashing in one half of a werewolf's head at the same time. How, how does Kurt not break his fist? Exactly. It <laughs> does bother me. That does actually bother me. There's like stuff with because yeah. there's a funny thing that happens with your favorite characters where it's just like yeah but part of him being my favorite character is that representations of him have to be true to the limits yeah. of the character <laughs> as well and that's like a case where i'm just like that doesn't make sense. i'm glad that he's so powerful and able to punch this thing in the face but that doesn't make sense with his powers last week andrew talked about sort of the absurdity of this book and you know and like it's going to become more so so it, even though i made that joke just now it doesn't bother me that much particularly given where this where this series goes but just understanding where we're at for like power levels of these characters captain britain can bench like 75 to 100 tons kurt is a human man (laughs) (laughs) he is he is just a person so when they punch the werewolf at the same time first off kurt's punch shouldn't matter but cap's punch should crush the werewolf's head 
and Kurt and 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 I'm just not gonna think about it because it just looks so damn cool. It was it's a good sight. It was funny. It was neat, and and it was like just try not to try not to worry about it. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's a little moment of like equanimity between Kurt and Brian that's sort of establishing that they have some kind of working relationship at the very least. Mm-hmm. You know, a nice right. Oh, a nice left from you. Oh, we're friends. High five. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about the team dynamic because that was the first kind of question that I had for for you. So this is the first issue I would argue where we really see the entire team sort of operating together. So we're getting kind of a sense of like what role everybody has on the team. But one of the interesting things that I think we have here as well is pardon the pun, a lot of the characters going off and doing sort of lone wolf acts as well. (laughs) What did you kind of make of that? Was that intentional? What do we sort of get about the team dynamic being constructed in, in this issue through this story? What are the different roles of the characters based on the the way the team interacts in the story. Well, I think the main way that Claremont structured X-Men before this was the idea that the team is going to win as long as they can work together, but they can't work mm-hmm. together. So, mm-hmm. so we're getting a little bit of that transfer over where the, the conflict is actually more internal than external. Um, so again, to me, that that's one of the things that sets up the satisfaction in the battle scene uh, where they do all work very, very effectively together. And again, you get these moments of sort of um, simpatico where before that they were kind of at odds and they were being hampered by bureaucracy and individual members doing their own individual thing, as you said. Um, so I, I think it's kind of playing into that motif a little bit, which I really, again, kind of like because it's a really good way to tie the character work to the action work in the sort of traditional superhero vein. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I mean, I liked the the, we, the way that we get within the team dynamics, sort of certain bonds being situated as especially important. And so we get that tension as well. Like, I think right. the sophisticated kind of character work and character development about Excalibur is one of the things I like about it so much in particular. So in terms of the strength of the bond between Kitty and Rachel in this issue, which both saves Kitty and is destructive in a sense because it almost drives Rachel crazy and she can't work within the context of the team because of her concern for Kitty. So you have that tension going going on you have obviously like Megan and Captain Britain are kind of a pair you also have the closeness of the relationship between Kurt and Kitty sort of playing out here in terms of it's because she's asked to devour Kurt that she rebels against the werewolf identity and then you know it's Kurt who puts the jacket over her shoulders at the end and comforts her right so I love like seeing those little bonds within the team dynamic which I think is part of again what makes the character development here so good yeah we didn't talk about it last episode but the the scene in issue one that maybe kind of helps lead into this of Rachel like throwing up over a toilet with Kitty mm-hmm. sort of curled mm-hmm. beside her comforting her I love mm-hmm. that image that was yeah actually so do I it's it because that is the we mentioned briefly actually I want to go back two episodes to our episode zero Kitty and Rachel weren't really close during their X-Men run yeah, they they knew each other, but that wasn't a relationship that was very explored. But it was a very big team. Excalibur is a much smaller team, and we talked about them not really having anybody. You know, this is a team of five individuals who've essentially lost everyone else they love, and so they're they're what's left. And that that moment shows a sisterly concern that I see of you know like some sorority to put it a different way of you know I can imagine this after a night drinking just as much as I can from psychic trauma right like you're you know you're helping your 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 sister here you're helping your friend and then 
that means enough to Rachel to when we get to this issue, it really feels like Rachel's essentially at the point of I've lost someone. I've lost everyone. I've lost my entire family in future in days of future past. I lost them again in the X-Men. This will not happen again. And mm -hmm. she even says at one point, mm -hmm. I'm going to save Kitty, even if it kills me. Well, that sort of gets back to what Andrew was saying, too, that it's sort of the individual flaws with these characters stops them from working as a team as effectively as they might do, in which case they'd be like undefeatable effectively. Right. <laughs> but that's like sort of what what infuses the story with tension. Right. So, I mean, Rachel in particular, she is an incredibly overpowered character. Her power mm -hmm. is basically limitless and she can basically do anything. She can transmute mm -hmm. matter. She's a telekinetic. She's a telepath. Her power is kind of a problem throughout Excalibur. And mm -hmm. I mean, the way Way that you express the weakness of that character is often through that emotional instability would you agree mm -hmm. with that yeah i think i think again the character dynamic there rachel is a loner who constantly isolates herself which mm -hmm. is good because that takes her away from the battle that she would easily win for the mm -hmm. entire team yeah it's interesting with i i like how it's kind of playing out with the kitty and rachel relationship here too we'll see more of sort of kitty's thoughts about rachel and some future issues but at this point in the series it's very much kind of and you know if you were a reader you wouldn't necessarily know this but certain readers would know this about the history of the characters in the days of future past storyline right where for rachel kitty pride was this kind of you know mother figure sort of inspirational mentor type of figure for her in that reality and so it gets flipped in this kind of timeline where rachel feels like she is the protective force for kitty and she is mm -hmm. intense in that mission yeah and mm -hmm. at the same time we should note that you know again for readers of x-men comics she does try to do the whole murder thing again <laughs> she says life for a life and like x-men readers know that's a real problem for rachel yeah, Rachel grew up in Rachel literally grew up in a war zone, a war zone where mm -hmm. she was defending her race from literal genocide on the daily. So to her, this is just like natural. Like this is this is what you do when people are hunting you and yeah. the werewolves are hunting you. So I guess we kill them now. You know, we got them. So the Nightcrawler speech, as hollow as it rings to me as a reader, just because it seems so formulaic, it would have rang just naturally. It would have rang really as sort of hollow and gratuitous and like naive to Rachel, given her upbringing. Yeah, but it works, yeah. right? He talks her down and that's another right. important character dynamic. She trusts him. You know, they are family. She does trust him and says, all right, you're right. And I guess that leads to the your, your who's the leader question, which we'll talk about in a little bit, too. Mm -hmm. yeah i mean there is a scene in a, so we've discussed before that that rachel doesn't necessarily have access to all of her memories in this depiction in excalibur and it'll be something that's addressed in some future issues but um but she knew kurt in her reality as kind of an uncle father type figure as well she has the speech in an old issue of uncanny where she's like you took me to the circus when you were a kid and stuff and in a future <laughs> issue of excalibur she's shown to possess a bamf doll so a doll of nightcrawler when she's a child so I think, although it's handled clumsily here, the idea that she would defer to him and respect him is sort of built into her story as well, in a way. Mm -hmm. um, but again, handled a little bit ham-fistedly here. What about some of the other characters? What about Megan's role in this story? Because we talked a lot about her being sort of the born innocent character in our episode one, but we get her taking on a bit more of an active role here. Did we think that that was sort of modulated from that first issue do we sort of like the portrayal of her, her better here i mean she takes on this like wolf kind of appearance right and is you know acting in a very sort of physical 
way in this issue. And I was wondering what you guys kind of made of that in terms of our opinion of this character. Uh, well, I'll sort of say what, what what Mav was saying earlier with the the punch thing. It's real weird that she forgot she could do that when they were just looking for Kitty. Uh, and, and kind of weird that the team forgot about that as well. Well, does she to you have a little bit of the similar problem that Rachel has where her power actually is so amazing and so potentially limitless that it becomes almost a story problem? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think, again, in, in this particular case, we're able to, to get her her power under control by having her constantly defer to Brian and to be shy and reserved and not mm -hmm. want to take that role. So actually seeing her assert herself, as you said, Anna, I think that's cool and shows kind of where she could go as a character if she didn't have this kind of domineering boyfriend in her life. Yeah. And I mean, that's juxtaposed, right? Like Brian being fairly, I don't want to, he is fairly bumbling in this issue. Like a lot of what he has to do is to yeah. sort of talk to the cops as the representative of the team. And then he kind of shows up not quite too late in the battle, but, um, but it's a little bit anticlimactic. He's not as he's not as inconsequential and bumbling as he will become. Yeah, later. yeah. <laughs> um, he's it is. This is again. We're working out details, but with Megan, uh, this is one of the things that I wouldn't have known. At, you know, like I knew she had shape shifting powers from Sword Is Drawn, but that was my only experience with the character. And and I expect you know for a lot of our listeners, if you're reading along with us, this might be your only experience with her as well. So when she's suddenly like, okay, I can become wolf like, and then I have all wolf abilities, yeah, including yeah. tracking. And it's like, oh well, that's convenient i guess um <laughs> i mean and and like andrew said would have been nice to have done that an hour ago but okay yeah <laughs> you know all right sure and it's we'll weird too this. because they specifically mentioned that she can smell both kurt and kitty right like so, you could throw something in that dialogue balloon to you know explain away why she couldn't do it with kitty the first time kitty leaves no scent because she's intangible yeah and you're done, done. <laughs> but, yeah, but no yeah. but no now she's got it Okay. Uh, this might be, like we've been so praising Excalibur up to now. Yes. This might be our first like strong yeah. criticism of the series, like the messy handling of Megan's powers. And it's weird because again, I said at the beginning of today's episode, I don't think I noticed it as much when I read it in 1988. Like mm -hmm. I'm noticing now, given hindsight, given knowing where the rest of the series is going and given, you know, having spent the last couple of decades professionally picking apart comic books, <laughs> you know, like, you know, like that's part of it. But also I just, I, I think it's, in, it's important when being critical to be fair. And there is some sloppiness mm -hmm. there. And like, we've all done substantial work on sort of representations of gender in superhero comics mm -hmm. as well. So, you know, figuring out the ways that Megan's power sort of is represented effectively or not is something that I think we're all mm -hmm. kind of hyper aware of. She's also so underserved in this issue, right? Because mm -hmm. like, I think that, I think that there's a lot that goes into Megan's, we talked about this on, on episode zero as well. And I know it's coming up in some future episodes. Um, Megan's literal portrayal of gender. Megan mm -hmm. looks the way she looks because she is making a conscious choice to be what Brian considers the the perfect woman. So she changes that here to, you know, to be a more combat tracking ready portrayal of strength and power. And the comic does absolutely nothing with it, right? Like there, it's too busy dealing with the fight and dealing with trying to save Kitty to talk about the ramifications of the fact that Megan can literally be whoever she wants to. She can be any kind of woman she wants to be. 
at any given moment and chooses consciously to be Brian's dream girl, but it doesn't mm -hmm. have time to deal with that right here. But I do think it's something interesting to keep in mind as we read the rest of the series. If I can say a rare thing in Brian's favor, I do like <laughs> that he doesn't react negatively to her wolf transformation. Like it would be so tempting for him to be like, oh, Megan, what have you done to yourself? But he has no reaction <laughs> to it at all. And I actually really like that. He's seen it before. I mean, he met her. When, yeah. which, which I didn't know, but he met her more in demonic form, right? Mm -hmm. so, he met her in that exact form. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a reference to, yeah, like her mm -hmm. sort of original form, which was kind of this werewolf type of form. But it's still interesting that she has become this dream girl. And that's like the woman that he, if he's in love with her or not, that that's the woman he's at least in a relationship with. And yet, yeah, I still like, though, that he doesn't express, you know, like the, the stereotypical sort of being appalled at her taking on this quote you know quote unquote monstrous form in this scene that is sort of like a little touch that i did like and i do think it's intentional so who is the leader of excalibur you mentioned that question before and it's going to come up in the letters page that we're going to look at this week uh-huh i mean are you asking seriously or are you asking well, for the for the debate the <laughs> debate is oh well, i don't know it could be it, it's kurt the answer is kurt kurt is the leader yeah. of excalibur <laughs> and, and i'm and i i think we're supposed to see a struggle that is maybe not served as well as it should be. I, I have thoughts on why. Like, I think that, and I wonder, and I don't remember ever feeling this way. I don't remember ever feeling like anybody other than Kurt was. Sword is Drawn made it clear to me that Kurt was the competent one because Brian is a drunken idiot. I knew that from, from Sword is Drawn, right? So when I read this one, and issue one and two have this thing where the cops are deferring to Brian. Kitty and Rachel are sort of very officially saying, okay, captain, what do we do now? You know, th like they're like, I think the book is trying to set him up as a leader so that there is some tension between, is it Kurt or is it Brian? It doesn't work. Like it's just Kurt is the one that I know from you know, he's the more popular character. He's the most experienced of the former X-Men characters. He's the most competent. And Brian is, you know, well, his name's Captain. Like, that's what he's got going for him, right? Like, I like I think maybe I'm supposed to, like, sort of apply some of my feelings about Captain America to Captain Britain as a reader. Mm -hmm. But I don't. And, and, and I don't, and I, in you know, I, I don't know that any, I don't, I mean, I don't know every fan's opinion, but I don't see anybody really reading it as, oh, well, gee, there should be a fight here over leadership. No, it's Kurt's just better at this. Yeah, but I guess I'm interested in how it plays out in the story in terms of how is that signaled? I mean, it's signaled in sort of drawn like through the dramatic contrast between Kurt's behavior and Brian's behavior. But mm -hmm. how do we know that Kitty's not the leader? How do we know that Rachel isn't the leader? Because Rachel's the most powerful one and Kitty is the one who sort of takes the most initiative, mm -hmm. arguably, in both issue number one and issue number two. So how do we mm -hmm. know that they're not the leader? I think Rachel is the leader. Do you? Okay. Uh I do. I, I think Brian's the figurehead. Like I, I okay. completely agree with Matt. There's no argument there. He's just the guy who is British. So have him talk to the cops, right? Yeah. <laughs> Essentially. But I mean, Rachel with her telepathy, she's, she's given the orders. She's telling who to go where at what mm -hmm. given point in time. Uh, mm -hmm. Now she's in consultation with everyone else, such as, you know, Kitty and Kurt. And I think that's a lot of how Kurt distributes his leadership channel, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but for me, I, th I think it's Rachel. I mean, even if we look really? at the, the cover of Excalibur 1. She's in the center. Yeah. Yep. So to me, eh, I always read Rachel. Now, the one thing I will point out, though, is that I think the nature of Excalibur makes it a little unclear who is leader because mm -hmm. 
we're very quickly going to be put into a position where they're not really doing anything strategically. They're just on the run. And, and it's hard to identify again, even. And they're largely separate during that during that point too. They're, you yeah, know, they're exactly. all up on an individual. It doesn't matter who the leader is because they're all on five separate solo stories during that point. I would argue that Kurt is the leader, but that the unsureness of that sort of extends from the qualities that he brings to his leadership role. Like mm -hmm. he's not the sort of Cyclops type leader that's sort of given orders. He's mm -hmm. not the Professor X type leader, especially that's like really telling people what to do, right? He mm -hmm. is somebody that his skill is modulating the personalities of the characters. He's, he's like a leader who's a facilitator, right? Mm -hmm. If it makes sense for Rachel to take the lead in the story, he is willing to like cede that power to her and be like, you know what? Your powers work the best in this situation. I'm going to step <laughs> back. Mm -hmm. And like, I sort of think like that's how he comes across as kind of the leader is like sort of his ability to step forward and back as necessary. Whereas what I would argue about Rachel not being the leader is that she lacks that ability to modulate her behavior. That would be, although I, I don't deny like, Andrew, you've had a couple of great Claremont red threads lately about Rachel's character. And it really did make me think about Excalibur differently in terms of there were commentators on there saying like, yeah, Excalibur was Rachel's book. And I was like, what? I had never thought about it that way before, but as I've been rereading it, I'm like, oh, of course, like she is so central, like mm -hmm. her journey is at the heart of the book. And I just always thought about it as a Nightcrawler book because he's my guy. And like, that's sort of my entry point to the series. But if you're really into Rachel, totally, you could read this as Rachel's series. And yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you brought it up and that that was your reading of it. Cause I think that that's, that's a valid reading for sure. Yeah. I could do a chess analogy and be that nerd, but like for me, uh Kurt Go is the ahead. advisor. He, yeah, he's the bishop. <laughs> Brian is please. the king. He's useless, but <laughs> the figurehead. And, mm -hmm. and Rachel's the queen, man. She's the one with all the power and therefore the one okay. who's in control. And, and I was going to go a different way, but I think, I think I'm going to make the same point. <laughs> I think that, well, so I think it's interesting because the natural inclination with Excalibur is to compare it to X-Men, right? And mm -hmm. in X-Men during this era, there's a very definite Storm is the leader. Storm yeah. was the leader and she was the leader because she, you know, because Cyclops was the leader and now Storm is. She's but like, there's a very central we are a paramilitary force. Somebody is the commander kind of thing, right? Going going on in that era of, of, of X-Men comics. That said, it's 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 an anthology ensemble cast, right? There's an mm -hmm. ensemble cast going on in X-Men. But for the fan favorite character, certainly at that point becomes Wolverine, right? Wolverine is mm -hmm. the interesting person where... I mean, I, and I know a lot of fans like to hate on Cyclops. I actually think what's happening with, with Scott through the Claremont run is actually far more interesting than what's happening with Logan, which who is largely a black box of mystery. But Rachel very much is the one who has something super interesting going on from a comic booky perspective, right? What's the mystery? What does it mean to be the Phoenix? There's a lot of stuff going on that makes her the most interesting in a Wolverine kind of way. But I wonder if the team of Excalibur, what it really comes down to is particularly in the very beginning, like less so as the series goes on, but in the very beginning, I don't know that there is a leader because I don't know that they're a team like X-Men or Avengers. They're more like Fantastic Four, right? Mm -hmm. Where Fantastic Four is a family where we call Reed the leader because he's his name is Mr. Fantastic and he's the most <laughs> obviously white guy. Like that's <laughs> that's really what it came down to. But they're just four people. I mean, is he really in charge of Sue, Johnny or Ben? 
nah not i mean he's he's just he's the leader by convention because we think of teams as needing a leader in a way that we don't with duos right like like who's the leader of cloak and dagger no there's no leader there's there's cloak and there's dagger you know like we don't really think of twosomes as having a leader and there are five some and i i don't know that they because kitty's clearly the smartest by leaps and bounds and and this storyline she's got the initiative um i think kurt is the most heroic at this point of like in a classic hero sense rachel's the most powerful and brian represents britain megan's not the leader <laughs> i mean like <laughs> i mean i don't know what else to say about brian other than you know he's got the name he's you know i am captain britain i represent britain you can tell because my costume's the flag you but see? what is he captain of he's not in the military he's captain of britain what do you what do you mean the ship of britain <laughs> Just like you have a Mr. of the Fantastic, I am Captain of the Britain. <laughs> I've always loved with Mr. Fantastic. He's like, he's a doctor, but he takes Mr. for That's very confusing. Mm. But, oh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's some. I, I don't want to get into the whole weird how people feel about the title doctor. They're wrong. Yes. Yeah, well, I'm sure. That's a whole conversation all of us can get into. But, um, but yeah, well, my counterpoint to your, to your Fantastic Four Reed argument would be that I think part of how Reed comes across as the leader of the Fantastic Four is through his flexibility. And he feels like a similar role to Kurt and Excalibur in terms of he's the one that can control the volatile personalities and then often becomes his mm. role. Because, I mean, the thing is always going off, trying to do something off the cuff, violent, that's going to harm the team. And it's Mr. Fantastic with his literal powers of flexibility that wraps around Ben and redirects his energy into a positive vein. And we can talk about sort of the specific things that the various Excalibur characters bring to the team. But I do think that despite Megan being the one who's a shapeshifter, Kurt is the one who's the most flexible. And that mm -hmm. kind of sort of works him naturally into that modulator facilitator of the other's role. Mm -hmm. And that would, again, sort of speak to why I think both Reed is kind of the leader of Fantastic Four, but why Kurt is as well. And it's, if we want to get like academic about it, it is sort of a revision in how we think about leadership in kind of like a post-war context from sort of like the traditional patriarchy patriarchal shouting orders figure to someone who is leading in kind of more of an interactive team way that is sort of leading through this flexibility and through sort of leading through example and Andrew I know you've talked about that sort of evolution with Cyclops's character and sort of the juxtaposition between Professor X as that sort of old school leadership and Cyclops sort of having those conversations with him in Uncanny that he's like this is a team of individuals you can't treat them that way they need to right. like bring their individual strengths to the team right and to me I again my argument for Curtis leader sort of extends from that that that's sort of almost a further evolution of that and that he's like even less of the clear-cut leader but his leadership emerges through that flexibility and through his ability to accept that flexibility yeah i really like that bring in the letter here oh yeah because it, it specifically talks about that yeah i know so we have our first letter page and, and it does we do have a letter that references that specifically that i was going to highlight so we have a letter from jd naylor of phoenix arizona who quite specifically describes kurt as the leader of excalibur and like without question right and i was wondering whether that was just sort of an inference that taylor developed from sword is drawn or whether that was how marvel was marketing the series because it was so like a given like he writes like i am glad to see nightcrawler leading excalibur 
whatever. He has a strong strategic mind and like it's just sort of taken as a given that he's the leader. And, you know, this is a letter that is preceding even the launch of the series. So that's interesting. Yeah, Yeah, that's surprising. So the marketing that I recall from for Excalibur at this point were two things. There was an ad that they ran just sort of as a full page ad for coming Excalibur, which is exactly the cover of issue one. And then there was Marvel used to have this series called Marvel Age and Marvel Age was mm-hmm. sort of there was no Internet. So they they communicated all of their, you know, behind the scenes stuff that they wanted to leak in this comic book sized magazine of stuff going on. And for some reason, they decided to do a Marvel Age annual, which was a preview of all the series that were coming out in 1988. So it came out like end of 98 of 87 beginning of 88 and it's just this here's what the new mutants are doing here's what the x-men are doing and there's one little storyline that appears to be canon and it's wolverine or logan who's thought dead walking around madripoor as patch and for reasons yes for reasons the Um, new mutants happen to be there and excalibur happens to be there and they neither of them see wolverine because he's hiding because he doesn't want to reveal he's alive for the reasons that we talked about on episode zero which don't make sense but like in that storyline they've got five panels of really weird nothingness happening and it doesn't seem any more obvious to me that kurt is the leader over brian than it does in any of these series i read him as such but again i think that was because no one knew who brian was like and no one knew who brian was and i think and and certainly no one knew who megan was and kitty was a kid and i don't think anybody trusted rachel also they're female so probably there was a little bit of sexism there but i but like storm Mm -hmm. had been leading x-men for quite some time at this point so i so certainly the comic fan book fan knew in fact storm was leading x-men with no powers no less Mm -hmm. so so i think it was really that they saw kitty as a kid and no one knew what to make of Rachel. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was thinking as I was thinking to my about my own reaction to it, it was like, was I sort of doing that too? Do we assume that Kitty or Rachel aren't the leader based solely on sexism? And I was like, I don't think it is just that for me, but I do think it's a factor. Mm-hmm. But it's weird too, because like one of Kurt's last character arcs in X-Men was that mm-hmm. he's a failed leader. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But like, I mean, maybe there's like a supposition that this will be sort of a redemption arc for him in terms mm-hmm. yeah. of that failed leadership. Yeah, role. and that comes up in later issues too, right? Where mm-hmm. he very directly takes on, I forget what they're called, the M Squad or something like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, the N Squad, because they're named Thank after you. Nightcrawler. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. How did I? Yeah. <laughs> yeah and that's that's his moment right Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah anyway we will get to that in like a while (laughs) but um let's talk about setting because we didn't we talked about that a little bit in episode zero but we didn't talk about it too much in the last episode even though we had a lot of sort of specific settings so similar to issue number one this issue tries to use a lot of you know specific but sometimes imaginary uk sites and settings and i'm curious as to why you thought that it was doing that so the marvel universe is well known for having real life locations and it does that for a variety of reasons you know it can try to emphasize that connection between the fans and the world by incorporating these real life locations you know it can be like a shout out to like different parts of the country right i mean you know i think about old avengers issues where it's like oh they're at the detroit auto show you know like, and, like, <laughs> like so <laughs> deliberate but sort of charming depending on your point of view so i was curious did you feel that this sort of use of specific locations here was doing the same thing or is this sort of an exotic britain that's sort of being sold to american readers like is 
the representation yeah. of the UK here, Britain specifically, for American readers, or is it for UK readers? And how can we tell based on this issue? Well, I think it's it's reaching for that authenticity. I don't think it's achieving it. It's it's mm-hmm. it's very much a simulacrum of of London that we're seeing, um, and and everyone talks like michael kane and yeah <laughs> but less so less so than they could like yeah. no one no one is saying governor and it like which is what i would expect out of like uh i mean claremont is a better writer i guess but like <laughs> it's not as ridiculously over the top mock british as it could be and i i, I found sort of drawn to have like a very much a here's an idealized london this uh, issue two especially less so issue one but issue two especially is look they're 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 at a subway if you know london it's the underground but if you don't it's a subway mm-hmm. you've got a subway in new york you know how this works right <laughs> like, you know like like i don't think there's anything super britishy about the location for this specific issue for most of it right because they're they're mostly in a tunnel and there are trains there yeah what about kind of the texture of the world though like what about kind of their interactions with the police or sort then of absolutely police, yeah <laughs> sort of, but i mean even just sort of like law enforcement and the public's attitudes yeah. toward mutants and how is that different in this context versus how we usually see it portrayed in like the x-men when they're in an american context well i think there's a strangeness in that they, they kind of seem to have never had mutants before Mm-hmm. like they act like this is a new development but they're totally cool with captain britain who they're mm-hmm. familiar with um and that's maybe not continuous with marvel canon at the time period but it, it was a problem with how it was a problem with the distinction of how they tried to pro- portray mutants as a racial group in the 80s as well which i guess mm-hmm. if you want to argue that racism just doesn't make sense anyway so sure because people were always <laughs> i mean people were always oh my god the x-men they're mutants oh spider-man hey you know, yeah, like, yeah, exactly. What What are you doing? <laughs> you know, like, it, it, it didn't make any sense either. You know, oh, heaven forbid, Spider Man's a mutant because why? Like, it, like the the rationalization of of mutants versus regular people didn't make a lot of sense in in that era. I, I always push back against that argument because I I find that I'm very convinced by the argument that the reason that mutants in the X Men sense are more intimidating is because they're born with their powers and they're this next step in evolution versus being someone like Spider Man who's like the result of like an accident, right? So you can be assured that the human race isn't all going to become spider people, but you don't know that they're not all going to become Nightcrawler. And I would buy that except for that <laughs> nobody knows, right? Like, uh, like, like I know that, that as a reader. That uncertainty right. is what. Oh, well, yeah. So you're saying that the people within the Marvel universe yeah, don't yeah, know the people that, in, about mutants? If Nightcrawler walks up shows up on television and says oh yeah i used to be a regular guy but i got hit by cosmic rays how are you going to know you didn't like you don't know (laughs) you know like like i understand why people might be afraid of nightcrawler because he's blue and furry but like there's no reason to be afraid of kitty pride if you don't know that she has no powers it's like oh she's a mutant you know like it doesn't make sense that like like you're afraid of kitty pride because you assume she's a mutant you wouldn't know like and you wouldn't know that Spider-Man's not if you lived in that world. Someone has to tell you. It's, it's maybe, a... maybe this is an argument about like why it's like often not good for mutants to join the X-Men because you know you so you see how much happier Beast got when he joined the Avengers yeah. versus like when he's like with the X-Men and they're like, well, you're a mutant now, and it's like, oh, you're with the Avengers. You're probably just the result of some accident. You're cool. Yeah, yeah, and and that's but but I mean on the other hand, if you if you want to play it all the way out. Well, is this any different than being black or being Jewish or being mm-hmm. gay? Right. Like, you know, like if you're going to read the X-Men as the metaphor that they're supposed to be, I don't know if the guy just wandering down the street is queer or not, like unless he's specifically or I mean, 
if he's specifically announcing it, sure. But like a guy just wanders into a, into a store, he could or could not be. And I guess that's supposed to be the fear, right? I, it's, it's well, a... yeah, I mean, that's part of why X-Men resonates so strongly with queerness, I think, is just the fact mm-hmm. that it's like it's this invisible difference that is threatening because of its invisibility. Um, but I did want to point out just for that for all this, there is this is mostly a fighty book as opposed to the last issue, which is much mm-hmm. more relationship developing. But at the very beginning of, you know, when they're all running through the tunnels, there is a moment where uh, and I and I, I love this and nothing ever comes of it other than just to sort of build the world um, when the train almost hits people and Excalibur has to save them in order to um, it, it before they go after Kitty. This is right after she's kidnapped. Mm-hmm. Everybody Nightcrawler shows up and everybody runs around. Oh, my God, it's a horror. It's a demon. And there's one teenage girl who's like yes. a cutie. Yes, I, I would have 100 brought that up if you didn't. Yes, and she's she's like, and, she, and so which just gives you the fact that you know we never see this girl again. She's no, it's, she's not, it's not, she's not like Nigel who's going to become a main character. She's um she's a girl who's there that just lets you know that not everybody is uh not everybody is freaked out by mutants. Some people are you know kind of into it. So she's just fetishizing Kurt, and this is young Anna in the tunnels of London yeah. who who is just like ooh hot you know like yeah. just because he's there and i and i i love that about that little detail and that will happen periodically throughout Excalibur it happened in, in sort of drawn too where there, where there were some people who were afraid of Rachel mm-hmm. and then there were a couple of people who were like nah she's kind of hot you know like there's a mm-hmm. there there's a, there's a little bit of acceptance growing acceptance within within the human community of not everybody is just sort of fearing the other some people fetishize the other so you know mm-hmm. Different? Yeah, and I, I wish that some of that <laughs> got played out more comprehensively in Excalibur, just to the extent that, like, are they making an argument that sort of the British public treats mutants a little bit differently than the American public does? And I think you see hints of that here. There's sort of, there's kind of a calmness and kind of a, like, what's all this said about it that, you know, I think is trying to sort of mortgage a, at least stereotypical British identity. But with that thing with the girl, I specifically love, of course, that it's a teenage girl. Uh, that's the one that's like, that thinks he's cute because it is sort of a running gag throughout Excalibur that dudes are afraid of Kurt but like girls are usually into it yeah I like Di Thomas too as sort of that embodiment of okay this is happening now and I'm very tired and (laughs) (laughs) okay well let's talk about just briefly in terms of the storytelling we've talked a little bit about this being a more action-packed issue and yet we still have this long-form storytelling which I know Andrew in particular is an expert on so we have this very Claremontian thing where we get these B plots or C plots or whatever we want to call them introduced at least one of which the opening scene with Colin and and Widget um, will not fully play out until as I said in the opening years later so could you speak Andrew to what is this strategy that Claremont employs here did he kind of pioneer this strategy how does it kind of generate reader engagement how is he kind of using those multiple plot threads to kind of tell this long-form story that's particularly going to engage fans well, I think it's um, the pattern we like to compare it to is a fractal. So it's exhibiting self-similarity. You have this main story unfolding with all these subplots. Uh, and then each of those subplots is capable of becoming a main story itself with its own subplots. Claremont, I wouldn't say pioneered it, but I do think he perfected it. And he's often kind of credited for um, really making this work in comics. Um, but there are other examples as well. Like I, for this Excalibur two-issue um, um, the little intro scenes, I think a lot of like Walt Simonson's Thor, uh, which begins mm-hmm. with these surreal sequences that don't mm-hmm. connect to the story in that issue in any direct way, but they keep repeating. Uh, you see them at the start of the next issue and the start of the next issue and the start of the next issue, eventually leading you to a really good 
story arc. So it creates anticipation, it creates continuity, and it kind of even creates reader loyalty a little bit. Um, just mm-hmm. wanting to see how this story is going to unfold once it finally gets the chance to do so. Yeah, and I think, again, sort of getting back to that idea of Excalibur as a cult series, like particularly a lot of the kind of the deep cuts here. And again, the fact that it takes so long for some of these storylines to pay off. Like, I don't know, because I didn't read it in real time. And so I don't know what the effect would have been in that space. But for me, reading it in retrospect, it's like something like the Colin story paying off like 40 issues later. That makes you feel so cool because you're like, oh, man, I remember that happening. And then it actually Mm -hmm. paid off. It actually got brought back again. And you're just like mind blown. And that creates a kind of reader loyalty almost because your engagement in the series paid off and it rewards you. And I think that that's like a very powerful drug. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He was gone just long enough to get over being aggravated by it. Because when so he does come across Colin comes across in this in this issue in issue two as though, oh, this is an interesting character. He's you know, he's like, oh, I'm a mutant. It's a little kid. Oh, where are they going with this? And then, Mm -hmm. okay, you know, spoilers for the listener. He's not, you know, when we say it's 40 Mm -hmm. issues later. It's 40 issues later. So if you're reading this like one issue at a time, one issue per Mm -hmm. month, it was years. Like by the time he comes back, he's like, oh yeah, (laughs) that kid. I I forgot about him. Like, cause it, cause it just, you Mm -hmm. just assume it's a dropped plot line. And I mean, it kind of is, he doesn't matter. He, He, you know, he goes through this magic doorway to somewhere. And then we do not deal with him for a while. So that's, we'll see what I mean, I definitely remember the effect it had on me, though, reading that and seeing it pay off later. Because, I mean, I would have read it in a much, obviously, much more compressed time frame than either of you did because I wasn't reading it in real time. So I probably read all of Excalibur in like two weeks. So, I mean, (laughs) it was like a lot different, right? Obviously, in every way. Being like, wait, they had that planned the whole time? And it's like, oh, man, like, what a great series. (laughs) Even though, who knows? I mean, we'll talk about sort of how the story evolves and sort of the Claremont's departure and all of that stuff but um but yeah it's definitely I it speaks as well I think both of you are sort of bringing up that it speaks to sort of the direct market as well and that this was a time in which you know the direct market was king and so you you had that ability to tell those kind of stories right you had the sort of ability of readers to rely on the comic book store to not miss an issue mm-hmm. and so you were able to tell sort of different types of stories as well and sort of Claremont perfecting that technique sort of works with things that were happening in, in the industry at the time which I think is really interesting as well mm-hmm. on the other hand I, I did want to talk a little bit about some of the inconsistency that happens from that as well i mentioned earlier kurt and kitty are in london recuperating from injuries and issue one mentions that kitty is stuck being mm-hmm. intangible unless she concentrates really hard and you know that kurt can barely teleport anymore it you know it almost kills him every time he does and then sometimes because the book needs them to be able to do things yeah that's just not the case right like <laughs> like, like kurt just, kurt all last issue kurt teleports and then doesn't again this issue kitty forgets that like there's a problem with her intangibility you know largely because she's solid because the werewolves undefined you know sort of ambiguous powers to make her solid and then at the end she's like oh well i'm intangible again i guess you win some you lose some as she's handing rachel her costume so she 
certainly can be oh, solid. God. I've thought and... so much about that, Mav, with Kitty's powers. <laughs> I'm just like, okay, yeah. if Kurt is putting the jacket There's... on her shoulders, is he intangible in that moment with her in order to be able to have the same level of intangibility to be able to put the jacket on her shoulders? I'm so confused. <laughs> I think she made herself tangible long enough to where it i don't know and 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 the book doesn't i mean i don't think this is the absurdity issue of the book that we've been talking about i think this is yeah. the book just not caring enough to deal with it because we've only got two pages of story left and we got to get we've got to set up plot line with the world with the werewolves but there is there's that inconsistency and also you know we should talk a little yeah, bit yeah i do want to talk about it, it relates kitty to our powers too, because so. <laughs> right so so first off it's not clear how kitty survived this it, this is a little because mm -hmm. mutants and intangibility and rachel and let's look look the, look we want to do this cool body horror thing of her prying herself out of the werewolf's mouth so just go with it and that i'm okay with for the absurdity issue it's it's the exact same as captain Britain and kurt punching the werewolf at the same time the story needs them to do it that's fine on the other hand and i know this plays into like Andrew's feelings on like the sexualization of Kitty at this age. Kitty, an hour ago in her time, was feeling very exposed wearing Rachel's skin tight costume. And now she's just in a fight with a space wolf while completely naked and completely unbothered by this in in sort of a I mean, does the trauma of being in this situation just beat her inhibitions to where she doesn't have time to think about this right now? Or is it, I, I appreciate the issue, I mean, the visual of her clawing her way out of the werewolf's mouth. I get that. And I get why, you know, why it's done. But it is a weird, she's weirdly not apprehensive enough about being naked at that point to where Kurt has to oh, yeah, go I can, I can the, maybe the attempt her. an apologetic read on this. So go for it. her arc in these two issues is about <laughs> A, not feeling comfortable in her own skin. Uh, and then B, again, kind of having these anxieties and then discorporating, right? Being absorbed into someone else's consciousness and body, or sorry, body more than consciousness. Uh, so I, I think the idea of her coming out of the werewolf at the end, you could read that as an assertion of her own sort of sense of composition that she's been it's, a, it's, it's like a violent rebirth yeah it, it's an assertion of her bodily agency in, in that sense but again that's charitable mm -hmm. that was andrew how i mm -hmm. read it mostly as well i think what i'm trying to get at though in terms of this being a particularly sort of dense scene is that i think it's these multiple things at once like i think it's a powerful assertion of kitty's agency to rebirth herself by fighting her way out of the yeah. mouth of this thing that swallowed her there's a lot going on there and there's a lot that i actually <laughs> like about what's going on there in terms of that assertion of agency and birthing herself right but at the same time it's Mm -hmm. I know, I know. <laughs> Literal birthing. Little it look it it looks like yeah. <laughs> and like, it is not so ambiguous. That's no. something, and yet it is very sexualized. She is wet and naked and you know, so it's both things going on at once. And I do have discomfort about that and mm -hmm. I don't really have a final word on it other than to say that I think it's a thematically significant scene that is also uncomfortable and that's a lot of how Kitty Pride's portrayal particularly when she's supposed to be a little bit younger in Excalibur it's sort of emblematic mm -hmm. of her portrayal in some ways mm -hmm. yeah it's going to be a thing going forward it is going to be a thing and I think that there are some some places where as we go on it will be more sexualized here i'm i don't know i'm oddly more forgiving of it in that i think we talked last week we talked a lot about kurt being in the bathtub and i think davis here 
tries to not sexualize her in a, he tries mm-hmm. to not gazyness her the way that he was explicitly mm-hmm. trying to do it to Kurt. Like he tries to tone it down here and be more respectful, more horrific, and less sexualized. That said, right. it's still a naked fifteen-year-old girl. So, so like it's going to be, it's going to have that element. It's weird in that not so usually I'll be a, a little more apologetic of her because again at the time in which I'm reading this I was her age and it didn't really bother me to have a like I I was aware very much so that teenagers had sexualized feelings so I sort of got it because I was like literally reading it at the same time as she was growing this doesn't feel as sexual to me yeah. because of the horror element but again it was a choice they didn't well I mean I, they wrote a story such that she would be birthing herself naked from the I think mouth to of the, the I, I agree with so. that for sure. And I think that the <laughs> horror element makes it really complicated. I think where I'm still like this, it's a bit of like mm-hmm. the larger context of Kitty Pride that sort of I'm bringing to it, you know, kind of her status as this nerd dream girl, you know, she is yeah. the girl, the, she is the accessible girl mm-hmm. next door type who's a nerd just like you are, who's also a badass, but is also super sexy. And it's like, because Kitty is already mm-hmm. that character, it's just the scene where she's naked and doing this horror thing. And like, I mean, you know, some of her iconic scenes from Uncanny are uh, from Uncanny that you know later inspire something like Buffy are her being this like little teenage girl that's facing down monsters, right? And that's at the root of her sexiness mm-hmm. as well. So I'm reading that into this a little bit. And again, I'm not saying that it's right or wrong. I think it's a powerful scene in a lot of ways, and it's actually a scene that I like on the whole. Although mm-hmm. I do think it's a complicated scene for sure. Well, yeah. Yeah, I think, oh, sorry, I was going to say, I, I think I we, we came at this first by talking about the consistency issue. Um, mm-hmm. And that's actually something I like in terms of being mm-hmm. anti-sexualizing, because in, again, the last issue, you have Kitty questioning the tightness of the outfit that the superheroine is in and feeling mm-hmm. uncomfortable. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think if this were strictly a male mm-hmm. gaze thing, I mean, like Laura Mulvey tells us this, you're not allowed mm-hmm. to ask those questions. You're not allowed to demonstrate mm-hmm. that awareness. So that inconsistency to me actually works mm-hmm. in favor of desexualizing Kitty, but I don't think it's enough. I don't think it's enough. And and what I think is, it's weird. I mean, it's great because we have a show like this mm-hmm. where, you know, 30 years later, we're talking about it, right? But um, <laughs> almost 40 years later, it like, I get that. On the other hand, I'm looking at it as from growing at that point right like being her age and and uh, and and thinking and thinking it through anna you just made the point about her always having been the nerd dream girl which looking back as a 46 year old man <laughs> mm-hmm. yes she was okay i didn't get that you know 32 years ago i didn't get that right when i was 14 15 i didn't see her that way when i was reading x-men books at the time but i definitely saw her as sexier in Excalibur than I had seen her as her portrayal in X-Men a year, two years earlier. And I don't know if that's me being more sexually aware at 14 than I am at 12 or the way she's portrayed or both. Cause she definitely, you know, like now she's 14 when I'm 12 and she's 15 when I'm 15. So, you know, comic book aging, I'm catching up. Right. But, but like, I see her as more adult and, not just in her behavior, but in her sexuality in Excalibur than I did in in the, you know, even when she left the X-Men. She was she was more of a kid playing with grownups in X-Men. Yeah. And, and I, now her she's age a thing is a bugaboo because it's like, I know you keep saying that she's 15 and then Andrew's saying she's 14. She is canonically 14. And I know that because it will come up in a future letters page in mm-hmm. which there will be many letters that are like, how old yeah. is Kitty? Because she's super hot. And the mm-hmm. editors are like, she's 14. So, but it's a little bit of a 
de-aging of the character because yeah. that's not the age she could possibly be to have had all those adventures in Uncanny. So you're absolutely right that it would make way more sense if she was at least 15, yeah. more probably 16. And there's problematic other stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, they say that in a letters column, but there's mm-hmm. she knows how to drive and stuff. And she's and mm-hmm. she was 13 when she joined the X-Men and she I refers know. to stuff from a couple of years. She was 13 when she joined the X-Men. She'd been on the shelf for mm-hmm. a year. She says that explicitly. So she can't be if if all of her X-Men adventures happened <laughs> in two months, then mm-hmm. she could still <laughs> she could she could be know, kind of an old make, 14 It doesn't make now. any sense. I know, I know. No but I mean, Nothing partly that makes me wonder too whether it's a deliberate choice to like de-age the character because mm-hmm. they wanted to do certain things with her that work better for a 14 year old versus a 16 year old and that raises a whole lot of bunch of other questions and then they're going to raise yeah. her age later yeah. Yeah. in the series so <laughs> pete wisdom any, any, i know <laughs> so, <laughs> so, much, so to much to talk about in our 126 episodes oh uh, is there any final thoughts that either of you guys want to bring up i want to touch on the letters page just briefly but anything else that you want to talk about um nightcrawler's outfit at the zoo <laughs> oh my goodness how did we not talk about that <laughs> yeah well, the, sure. zoo, the zoo entirely before we get into the funniness because i don't want to end on a dreary note so i'd rather do the zoo in general before we talk about his outfit but the zoo bothers me in that their better solution to they're like oh well we have to have them deal with regular authorities we're not judge jury and executioner we can't just kill them so we're going to (laughs) enslave them in a zoo and everybody just blinks away from this despite the fact that not being a slave in a cage for other people's entertainment is Mm -hmm. literally rachel's entire plot line like like how is she just okay with this this is literally your entire character arc and then i thought and i and i thought well you know because i knew it was coming because i remembered that from the series so i was paying attention to it when we read it and my thought was well maybe they weren't really thinking about how you know ironically tone deaf this is and then i get to the to the second panel on that page and it says if they're sentient how dare they put yeah, them in the zoo yeah. so you knew you were doing this i mean like i think it's I charitably again I'm reading it as like retributive justice for like what was done to Rachel is being done to them and that's why it's okay but like that's like doesn't really make it okay especially when I mean because again it's weird because Mm -hmm. Nightcrawler just gave this speech about we can't just you know Mm -hmm. we are heroes we can't just do that there are rules the authorities have to deal with this but there are no authorities okay like the dialogue between Rachel and Kitty like Rachel's like I still think we should have killed them and Kitty says too quick (laughs) too kind too easy it's like oh wow so she was like i don't want to kill them because i want to enslave them and punish them it's like what and then like nightcrawler just makes a joke about like you're enjoying this and she's like you bet it's like wow okay let's start but anyway yeah his outfit yeah i don't don't even know if i want to say anything about it other than everyone should see it and it's this this wonderful mix of different aesthetics none of which suit kurt (laughs) yeah i don't know like, I mean, it's funny, but like, yeah. I mean, we'll definitely have it up on our Twitter. But um, but at the same time, you know, in a more serious vein, it speaks to at this point in his kind of superhero career and his character development, he was trying not to use his image inducer. He doesn't use mm-hmm. it throughout Excalibur. So there's sort of a strange tension about like what he does when he goes out in public, because he usually sort of tries to disguise himself in kind of an invisible man type of way. But um, the public's also aware of who he is. So how that works is a little bit inconsistent throughout Excalibur. But that's sort of what this is in conversation with, like that he's you know at least <laughs> in theory disguising himself rather than using the inducer i mean I, I guess please check this out on the twitter page or on our thing or if i've gotten around to it this episode's on youtube i don't know he is 
in 2021, I don't know that it plays as poorly because he is he's just a, essentially yeah. very extra. You know, like like I've seen this guy in yeah, I've seen this guy in the club <laughs> in today's world in a way that like it doesn't necessarily work as well in 1980. In 1988, he looks kind of weird. In 2021, it's like, oh, okay, there's that hipster. He's kind of doing a thing. Well, was, you this, was this supposed to come <laughs> like, off as like cool like, or not cool? I think it's not that was cool. My I reading. think he's supposed yeah. to be like mm-hmm. in a ridiculous guise. Because like because there's nobody like Rachel has her, mm-hmm. you know, her Terminator sunglasses and her leather coat and like she looks like she's just, you know, she's a little cooler than everybody else. And Kitty is like a little preppier than anybody else. Brian and, and Megan are rich and Kurt is just very yeah extra you know like i don't don't know i don't know like like kurt is beyond that but like nobody else around there in any anywhere possibly in kurt's world and then there is this little blonde boy who notices like he's just just like right below him to the right he's just like uh (laughs) this dude's blue and in a and in a winter coat and a cowboy hat why is no one gonna choose to read that as a moment of sexual awakening perhaps it'll play out again and then in a future episode Like like the fifth like the sixteen yeah. year old girl who's like ooh cutie yeah it's Kurt's over guy. there shaking <laughs> things up and it's for code yeah. and, it, and it's in oh geez I want to make some other yeah. fur joke there uh, let's just move on I did want to just mention <laughs> that this is the first appearance of the letter page which is known as sword strokes which I still find hilarious when we were discussing whether there is a letters page and I was like I think it's called sword strokes that can't possibly be right and I was like yep yeah, no it is um, anyway I find that very funny uh, we already it. highlighted one of the letters which is about Nightcrawler being the regular leader or the natural leader of Excalibur and I just wanted to because I think it's funny highlight another thing from that same letter from JD Naylor in which he complains multiple times about Kitty being boring and he is pleading with the editorial team to make Kitty more interesting give her a personality defect or something anything poor poor Naylor that um, is going to be very disappointed with how central Kitty is going to be in this book moving forward I suppose although anyway we'll have a lot of letters about um, a lot of opinions about Kitty moving forward in the letter pages i think she ends up being the the topic of most discussion in most of the letter pages and it will be a recurring theme as we go through but mostly Hmm. i thought it was interesting from this letter page sort Mm -hmm. of like how much anticipation there was for the excalibur series so it's unusual to have a letter page in issue number two of a comic but these letters are actually about sword is drawn the special edition comic Mm -hmm. so you just really see this being sort of the height of the x-men franchise's popularity and this is a highly anticipated series and the letter writers are like here ready to embrace this series and they're really excited about it was there anything that either of you guys wanted to Mm -hmm. highlight from letters it wasn't a stupendous letters page for me it was just it was interesting reading the back because i i used to you know i was enough of a mm-hmm. comic nerd that i read them from cover to cover i read every ad i read every I, I i read every letter and just looking at the world that excalibur the the you know the intertextual metatextual world that this book exists in where these people are really well who yeah, are they yeah, gonna yeah. fight mm-hmm. can we get other members it, you know it, it it is it is a very different you know separation of just a belief in mm-hmm. i just want to see who they're punching and this book will will very much not be about who you're punching um um and so i i you know we don't have we don't have the way the internet you can sort of get to go know the people who comment a lot we don't have that for for letters column world because it's there's a curating aspect and it's a lot 
harder and things are out of date. So I, I just wonder how people, you know, how did this play out to mm. readers who weren't <laughs> me? You know, you know, because I lo- I loved it. At the, I mean, it cl- clearly it it lasted ten years, so clearly it did okay. You know, but it was a weird. There was a weirdness to reading people back, and they're like, "Well, are these people going to join up? Are these people going to join up?" And then one of the letters is like, "I can't yeah. wait until they get to meet the X Factor like, no. or the or the X Men." And yeah. I'm like, "I'm like, oh, that's a, that's adorable." They're mm-hmm. they're about to go on an interdimensional space train and not see anybody for two years. So you yeah, know, I know, I know. and the, I like it's Anasanti. <laughs> I think responding to the letters on this column, and she is quite specific about being like, "Ooh, can't promise that," but so they must have known kind of where it was going. <laughs> but um, the only yeah. other thing I wanted to highlight is that yeah. so two of the letters are from there's three letters total. Um, and two of them are from Americans, but the third one is from someone in England. And I thought that that was interesting in terms of, so a lot of sort of the politics of letters column is, is that, you know, obviously these are selected for a purpose, right? To demonstrate something about the identity of the comic book. Mm-hmm. So the fact that they picked a reader from England, I think is interesting in terms of, you know, was this comic actually trying to appeal to readers in the UK as well? And so mm-hmm. I find the choice of that, of, of that letter to be interesting. I think we will end it there. We have... <laughs> reached our allotted time somehow we never seem to run out of things to talk about uh, about Excalibur which is a good thing because we've got what 124 more episodes to go Staying there's a meeting of the round table No I can't So next, in one week's time, we'll be on to episode three, discussing issue number three, Moving Day, in which Excalibur moves into the lighthouse and everybody has to fight for time in the bathroom. Also, Megan fights Juggernaut, sort of. We'll talk about it. We also have our first guest, and it's a good one, and we can look forward to that. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it. Or if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out to us via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extra and via Twitter at Gosh Golly Wow, where we'll also be posting daily pages from whatever issues we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Mav, for another fierce conversation. Thank you for listening and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thought Form Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out.